Welcome to the Undisclosed Addendum. I'm Allison Sweeney, and I'm hosting the Undisclosed Addenda for the Joseph Webster series. I'm excited to share that my new movie, Chronicle Mysteries, The Deep End, is premiering August 25th on Hallmark Movies and Mysteries, so I hope you check it out. In this third episode of Joseph Webster series, the Undisclosed team discussed the DNA testing done on the cinder block used to kill Leroy Owens and the review of Webster's case by Davidson County's new conviction review unit. Today, I'm joined by three guests. Rabia Chowdhury is one of the hosts of Undisclosed, lawyer and author of the New York Times bestseller book, Adnan's Story. Colin Miller is one of the hosts of Undisclosed and the Associate Dean and Professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law. He blogs at Evidence Prof Blog. And Daniel Horowitz. Daniel A. Horowitz is a constitutional lawyer practicing in Nashville, Tennessee. He is the recipient of the 2018 Harris Gilbert Award from the Tennessee Bar Association and a nationally renowned impact litigator. Horowitz has also been recognized by the American Bar Association as one of the top 40 young lawyers in the United States and one of the best of the best lawyers in Nashville by the Nashville Post. We are pleased to announce that he is Joseph Webster's lawyer. I'm ready, what you got? Okay, so well, you're currently the attorney for Joseph Webster and you've seen yep. his case through all of the ups and downs of the conviction review unit. Can we get a little backstory from you of how you became his attorney and what was your initial impression of his case? I became his attorney through a referral. Um, I, I believe uh, the current head of the now um, newly formed Tennessee Innocence Project uh, was the one who uh, referred him to me. Um, and I I got on his case right after his pro se petition for DNA testing had been denied. Um, it was a couple of months after that uh, that he, he retained me. And um, within about a month of, of me coming aboard was when the conviction review unit was formed. So this, this all happened uh, in pretty close period of time. That's amazing. It, what was your initial impression of his case when you reviewed it? Uh, well, I mean, th there were several things that stood out to me that still stand out to me. And I do think it's important to emphasize uh, some big picture issues here. Uh, first is that I can confidently say that the police have no idea what happened in this case, uh, which is still at least 50% cold. Uh, everybody agrees that there were two perpetrators involved. They don't even have a suspect as to who the second person might be. So the notion that they are you know, confident that their investigation uh, resulted in, in the right person being convicted is, is pretty hard to swallow because you know, even, even in the best case scenario, they still don't have half of this case solved. That was the first thing that I thought was, was interesting. But the second thing was what you covered in uh, the second episode of the podcast, which was this, this gold teeth problem is, is so obvious and so difficult right. to get past um, that the basis for this conviction uh, just strikes me as, as so comically unreliable that uh, I, I had problems with it instantly. This is a single eyewitness case, essentially, because the other eyewitnesses involved weren't able to make an identification. And you have you know, a very, uh, I think, difficult to believe eyewitness, not just in terms of the general unreliability of, of eyewitness identifications, but you know, honesty issues uh, related to this specific witness, uh, plus this very, very important detail that is missing, um, plus her, her saying to Mr. Webster's initial investigator that she would have remembered gold teeth, I believe her words were, uh, I, I would have sure remembered gold. Um, and you know, multiple uh, opportunities to view them and brought daylight up close. I mean, it, it's it's not possible uh, that he was the person that she she had actually seen. Um, so those those are the two things that jumped out at me instantly. But of course, as I dug into the case, the thing that was different, uh, frankly, from many cases that I see, is that every additional lead, every additional piece of investigation uh, becomes more and more and more exculpatory. Sometimes uh, in this business, you find the opposite, where somebody uh, brings an innocence claim to you and you start investigating it, and you realize you know this person's even guiltier than 
than anybody else realized, this was exactly the opposite. I mean, truly every, everything that we have, we have looked into has been extremely good for him. I think some of that evidence is, is just devastating to the prosecution's case. I think when you have somebody who was romantically involved with the person that we believe to be the real perpetrator saying, you know, he not only told me he did this, he bragged about doing it. He described it to me in a traditional case. If they didn't already have a conviction, I mean, that would, that would be considered such powerful evidence of guilt that uh, I think everything has, has just gotten better uh, since, since day one of this case. And hopefully uh, by the end of this process, the other side's going to see it the same way. It was an interesting issue that you played in last week's episode about the conviction review unit and um, how they see their job as different from the Innocence Projects. But really what you're describing, Daniel, is that the Innocence Projects, like they are already doing a filter on these cases. I mean, of course they get so many, but the Innocence Projects makes an effort not to take forward cases that uh, that they don't really believe they can prove, right? Um, you'd have to ask them. Uh, they were involved in this case uh, with respect to the DNA testing component. I'm very grateful to them. They paid for that um, very sophisticated YSTR DNA analysis. I, I do believe they vet their cases um, because, you know, obviously the, the goal is to get wrongfully convicted people exonerated. Um, so they do, I think, pretty substantial vetting, but uh, you'd have to ask them about, about their intake process. Right. Um, Obviously, you're, you're right, though. They are, once they sign on to represent somebody, they're advocates, uh, which is different than a CRU, which has a duty more generally. I think in cases like this, it's so clear that those duties overlap. I right. mean, this case, you couldn't even arrest the guy today. The evidence is so weak. Your one witness has recanted under oath multiple times, um, you know, multiple problems with her identification, generally, plus this mountain of other uh, exculpatory evidence from Mr. Webster and inculpatory evidence regarding the two other people that we believe to have been involved. It's, uh, I think this one is clear cut as it gets. And the big news from this recent episode was the DNA testing, right? The six spots on the cinder block that were used to kill Leroy Owens. And they returned DNA profiles that excluded Joseph Webster. First of all, as a side note, Colin, when you when you did the interview, you had such an even-tempered tone when you were like, so to be clear... <laughs> It excludes him. It eliminates him completely. I was like screaming in my car listening to it. And you're like, you were just so like casual about it. I was impressed. Yeah, I didn't want to lead the witness, so to speak. I want him <laughs> to sort of put it out there. And right. So I, as opposed to being more of an advocate there, I just sort of leaned back and yeah. allowed him to have that conclusion there. Right. It was, I was, it's so impressive that you do that. But, but that's big news, right? I mean, that's how significant is that for this? I, I think it's big news. So, uh, let me qualify that by saying um, it matters that we don't know whose DNA that is. I think there is a possibility that that is the victim's DNA here. Um, but it is nonetheless huge news in the context of Mr. Webster's case because the issue was left open at trial. Jurors were told it's possible that this is the real perp's DNA. And if I'm a juror in that box and I'm told that, I wonder, you know, why is this guy who's claiming that he's not guilty not rushing out to test that block. Um, I can't explain the strategic choices of Mr. Webster's trial counsel. Um, I think many of them were really not strategic and were a product of uh, lack of preparation. Um, but the, the fact that that issue was left open for jurors, and now we know uh, with 100% certainty that that is not, in fact, his DNA on that cinder block, um, I, I think I think it's a it's a major issue in the context of his specific proceeding. How come we can't find out if it's Joseph Webster's? I mean, how come we can't find out if it's Leroy Owens' blood? I mean, couldn't uh, I? I think there are ways to do it. Um, you know, one of them exhuming the body. Uh, we're we just haven't gotten to that point. That's not something that I right. I end. Um, and you know, as, as you all noted. Uh, the initial go-around with the CRU was not quite as good as we had hoped it would be. Uh, it's since been reconstituted. We're very happy about that. Um, right. But we're, uh, we were not necessarily on uh, the same page for 
uh, about two years ago. The DNA definitely got a lot of people on social media like talking and, and buzzing about it. Scott McHugh had a question that I have as well. Uh, did did I miss something? He asked, did they test the newly found DNA against Joseph Webster's brother? Was that one of the DNA samples they had? Uh, no. So, I mean, keep in mind how long ago this happened. This is before, you know, everybody's DNA profile was, was taken by Department of Corrections or law enforcement generally. So uh, as far as I know, his brother's DNA is uh, it's not in a database anywhere. So we don't know whose DNA it is, is the and accurate answer to that. Do we know where his brother is now? Yes, we do. He's here in Nashville. Oh, has he weighed in on what, what all this podcast or what where we're going with this case now? Not, not to me. Um, uh, <laughs> you'd, you'd have to track him down and ask him. We have not done any contact. Got it. So, you know, Susan, it took me 44 years of my life to finally realize maybe I need to talk to a therapist. I was about 25 years overdue. <laughs> Honestly, a lot of people have trouble, like, even admitting that or saying that. But I, ever since I've been doing this, I have encouraged so many people, my friends and loved ones, all of us, all of us need somebody to talk to. So do you, Susan. Everybody does, okay? It's such an age divide, though. It's like, older people are like, oh, did you know that she went to see a therapist whereas the younger crowd's like actually yeah we need help we need to have someone who is objective and kind and considerate who can help us right. in a professional way in a professional way and also in an affordable way and that's where talk space comes in talk space is therapy for how we live today it's amazing um it's mobile it's available when you need it it is affordable yeah life is stressful to say the least, uh, between work, family, and everything in between, it's not always easy to find time for yourself or even find time to make an appointment with a therapist. So here's how Talkspace works. It's online therapy. You provide your preferences for your therapy and Talkspace is going to match you with one of over 5,000 licensed therapists the same day. And you can then send your therapist unlimited text, audio, picture, video messages from anywhere at any time. And believe me, if any of you have any, I mean, like you guys know, if you have a therapist, like that, that is like literally almost impossible to do normally with a regular therapist. So uh, talk therapy is just revolutionary that way. Yeah. No matter what you're going through, you're not alone. So join more than 1 million users who feel happier with Talkspace. You no longer have to wait for your next appointment to talk about what's on your mind. With Talkspace, you can send unlimited messages to your dedicated therapist from the privacy of your device from anywhere, anytime. And... One month of therapy on the Talkspace platform costs about the same as a single face-to-face -face session, which is kind of amazing. So Talkspace has more than 5,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing the challenges we all face. To match with your perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code UNDISCLOSED to get $65 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com and make sure to use the code UNDISCLOSED to get $65 off your first month. Rabia, on the HBO series The Case Against Adnan Syed, we heard a lot about DNA testing done on objects found at the crime scene, including the partial DNA profile being recovered from the wire that was found near her body. Is there anything else that you've heard about that they can do about that evidence? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think, you know, they ran the DNA. There's a, a female profile that was found that is not the victim's and, of course, is not Adnan's or Jay Wiles, uh, state's witness. You know, I think the next step, if if there's nothing in a database anywhere, might be genetic genealogy, which is being used a lot more frequently now to solve cold cases. But also uh, it's been used in some wrongful conviction cases, too, which means that but, you know, the state on their own is not going to do it. The attorney general made a statement when the DNA testing was done that we do the testing. It's not him. And we're done. <laughs> Um, of course, that's not acceptable from the, the standpoint of the month's defense team. So, uh, you know, I think the next step is going to be to ask the attorney general to let us have the sample and run it through a genetic genealogy database to see if it hits on anybody who might have been connected to the crime. But right. um, if that's something the attorney general says, no, nope, I'm not going to give it to you, then it means we're going to have to fight it out in court and that could take years. Right. 
It's amazing that at least they have, they still have it. I was sort of shocked that they still had the cinder block. Are there other pieces of evidence in this case, in the Joseph Webster case, that they could still test? Yeah, so I mean, we, there was a cigarette pack found at the scene. We tested that too. It, it didn't produce any testable DNA, but and we don't know if that was involved. It was just found and cataloged. Uh, we do know, obviously, that the cinder block was involved. It was the murder weapon, and it would have been handled. Uh, and as I think, as as the person you interviewed noted, I mean, this is a rough object. It, it seems pretty plausible that um, skin cells would have been left on it, especially if you're swinging a cinder block into somebody's head multiple times. It was at least something that was important enough to tell jurors that the, the possibility that the perpetrator's DNA was on that block uh, was something that they could consider. And now we know with certainty that it is not Joseph Webster's. So I, I think it is exculpatory in that sense, regardless of uh, whose DNA it ends up being, even if it is the victim's. Um, if you're looking at the context of his specific trial and this question was left open and it is now closed, that is not Joseph Webster's DNA, that still matters. I do want to make um, a broad point before I forget that, and you all know this, but the adversarial process assumes meaningful preparation from both sides. There is an expectation that trial counsel is going to interview witnesses, going to do an investigation, follow up on leads, cross-examine properly, expose weaknesses in the state's case. It simply didn't happen here. Uh, multiple really important witnesses were never interviewed. I still consider Lakita Smith to be a central witness in this case, and uh, nobody from Mr. Webster's trial team ever talked to her. They don't even seem to be have been aware that she existed, even though she's mentioned in the discovery. Um, that That would have been incredibly helpful. And the other failures that you pointed out, failure to bolster the claim about the pre-indictment delay, failure to cross-examine Tammy Nelson about this uh, serious gold teeth problem. Uh, it didn't happen because there was no meaningful preparation in advance of Mr. Webster's trial. During his post-conviction proceeding, um, his trial counsel was asked how much time he spent. And he said, I'm, I'm looking at the transcript right here, if you want me to say more than 40 hours, I think it would probably be more than 40 hours. Uh, I mean, that's a what is that's a, what does that even mean? Such a minuscule amount of time. I mean, yeah. he spent 40 hours preparing for this murder trial. Um, I probably spent you know 40 hours over the course of the past week on this case. I've spent well over a thousand um, since since getting this case. It's a it's a very very serious case. Somebody is accused of murder. You have to investigate it. You have to. Uh, go through the evidence against him and expose weaknesses. The, the reason why uh, Mr. Webster is, is in the situation he's in is because uh, his trial counsel utterly failed him, abandoned many of his best issues in the appeal that was filed, and withheld some really important evidence from post-conviction counsel that we only realized uh, pretty recently. Uh, I do want to make a clarification. I think it was in in the second episode, there was a reference to the fact that the district attorney's office had, had failed to disclose some additional witnesses who were on the scene. Uh, that's, that's not accurate. Um, it's possible that the police didn't turn over some statements, um, but the real problem here was that trial counsel did not provide the full file to Mr. Webster's post-conviction counsel, and the parts that were withheld included those additional witnesses. The one um, talking about the fact that the perpetrator was tall and had a skinny build, which um, does not reflect Mr. Webster in any regard. Um, that was that was evidence that was provided by the DA to trial counsel. The trial counsel did not use and then failed to turn over to post-conviction counsel. So that's how we got here. So how is that different? How does that apply to, like, Colin, can they use that as new information in a hearing? Yeah, well, you know, Daniel, my understanding is that you delayed court proceedings to allow the CRU to review this case. Is that right? That there, if the CRU were to reject this case, you could be back in court. And what would be the claims that you would have in court at that point? That's correct. So we have a tolling agreement with the district attorney's office that as long as their CRU process is ongoing, and it currently is, the statute of limitations for Mr. Webster to go back to court is is on hold. So if they were to come back, and you know, I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic that that this won't be 
the result of the CRU investigation. But if they come back and they say, we just don't think that there's enough evidence to overturn this conviction, uh, we will go back to court. And um, the DNA is going to be a critical piece of new evidence. Um, but also, Shawana Norman's testimony that she was romantically involved with the real perpetrator and he bragged about having hit somebody over the head with a brick uh, is devastating new evidence to the state's case. These new witnesses might not be new in the sense that, yes, Mr. Webster's trial counsel was made aware of them, but the utter failure to communicate with your client um, to present evidence that's exonerating um, and exculpatory to him to, to withhold that evidence from post-conviction counsel, we're going to be arguing that Mr. Webster was essentially abandoned by his trial counsel, and he was. If the entire file had been provided to post-conviction counsel, I strongly suspect that his post-conviction petition would have been granted and, we, and he would have gotten a new trial. Those, those new witnesses had come and testified about the skinny build of the perpetrator. It's just, it's inconceivable to me that that Mr. Webster would still be in the situation that he's in. Can we step back for a minute? One of the big focuses of the episode was the conviction review unit. And I, I just wanted to understand it a little bit better because it seemed very sort of feast or famine, right? That they haven't, this one in Nashville or Davidson County hadn't uh, issued a single exoneration in their years of operation. But Rabia, you've had a team at Philadelphia's conviction review unit that's had three exonerations. So what are your all thoughts about the difference of how these units are operating or how they're constructed? It seemed like that seven prosecutor panel didn't ever want to move out of the gate, right? Like they couldn't agree on anything. So how does that how does that weigh in? How does that affect how they do their job? I mean, the movement that we're seeing out of Philadelphia has happened only in the wake of really the election of Larry Krasner, a highly progressive district attorney. And I think it's not about these units. I mean, like we have the same issue in Baltimore, you know, where you're not seeing a lot actually happen. It's just, it's like any other entity. It's about the people who are involved and the people who are, you know, in charge. And so, you know, I I don't know until, well, I mean, the truth is we, we didn't work directly with the conviction um, review unit in Philly. It's been the attorneys, the, either the Pennsylvania Innocent Project or Chester Holman's, uh, he has his private counsel who was working with them, but I don't know to what extent they were getting any anywhere before uh, Larry Krasner was was sworn into office. It's really we've seen a big uptick in exonerations and changes coming out of that office since that. So I think, and I can't remember, but I think he appointed, put in charge of his conviction um, review unit, an ex-director of an instance project. Colin, is, am I right about that? So somebody who has come from an instance background. Yeah, well, Patricia Cummings was at Dallas County at their CRU, which has basically been one of the best in the country, if not That's the right. best. That's right. And yeah, in, in Chester's case, the team, as Robbie notes, really dealt with Chester's attorney. But in the Terrence Lewis case, as well as the Willie Vesey case, which we think might be trending toward an exoneration pretty quickly, uh, I've been in direct contact with people on the CRU team, sent them interviews that I've done, uh, Susan and I, in the Terrence Lewis case found certain important notations in the files that pointed to other witnesses who weren't disclosed and other perpetrators. And so, yeah, I mean, it's really been a joy working with them. And Ali, as you noted, is Feast and Famine. Uh, the Quatrone Center that we mentioned in the episode has sort of a series of guidelines they recommend for CRUs to adopt. And Philadelphia has done that. Some other CRUs have done that. And I know that Davidson County, from speaking to um, their team that they have looked to Patricia Cummings and the work they've done in Philadelphia and are trying to reform that unit. And so, yeah, I think Philadelphia is one of the gold stars in the CRU universe about how to do it right. And it's both about how the CRU is set up as well as the people involved. They're really willing to put in the legwork and talk with people and hear new evidence and consider the effect that has on prior convictions. It also seems important to sort of make it clear to the population that's voting these people in office that it isn't the same thing as not being tough on crime or it's making sure you get the right guy, right? You know, that we're trying to help everyone here. Yeah, so it's important to realize, it's just, I think remind people of that, that when you have a wrongful conviction, there are two 
simultaneous injustice is. So first, you send the wrong person to prison, which is the worst possible mistake that the criminal justice system can make. But secondly, you leave the actual perpetrator out on the streets and you give the victim and their family this illusory sense of justice when the person who actually perpetrated the wrong is still free. In this case, part of the reason that I was so upset, I think is probably the most gentle way to describe it, upset with the initial CRU determination wasn't because they voted not to exonerate. Uh, We weren't even asking them to exonerate Joseph Webster at that juncture. What we were asking for was an investigation. And we provided this wealth of evidence, exculpatory evidence, um, that not only exculpated Mr. Webster, but pointed directly to the real perpetrator and asked simply for the unit to investigate. That's what was rejected, um, despite uh, recantations, multiple right. family members pointing the finger at somebody else, a new witness coming forward to say that the real perp had bragged about it, DNA evidence, new eyewitnesses that were identified and hadn't been adequately disclosed to post-condition counsel, just this mountain of evidence that helps exonerate Mr. Webster and asking this unit to follow up on it, to investigate it. And we got to know that has been remedied. All is forgiven. The investigation is underway and we're waiting for the new uh, reconstituted process to play out. Always skeptical, of course, but cautiously optimistic. I think this case, it cries out for someone to investigate it and figure out what happened. I mean, somebody was murdered. And there were two people responsible for that murder. And at the very least, regardless of who you ask, everybody agrees that the second person hasn't been identified. That's a problem, or at least it should be seen as a problem. It's a public safety issue. It's a justice issue. And the fact that we don't know the answer to that question, I think, reflects on the reliability of this conviction in the first place. Because, you know, as mentioned, law enforcement does not really know what happened here. Um, And it needs to be investigated. So we're happy that that determination was made. We're happy that it's being um, investigated now. And and we're just waiting for that process to play out. I don't want to harp on this because you're right. Like, it's all is forgiven. I'm glad they're really doing it. But I and some people on Twitter were having the same question. A guy named Totoro, maybe it's a woman, uh, was wondering, it seems like there's a need for some sort of national template here, you know, that the CIU, the CRU team's maybe have some sort of certification board or a monitoring system? Is there a federal body that can monitor them? Like, how do we think we could, right now it seems very like catch as catch can, like it's however they want to go about it. Is there a way we could make this more uniform? I mean, possibly. I think whatever jurisdiction you're in, the efficacy of the unit is going to Uh, match the constituency that's being served. So if you're in a place where voters really care about criminal justice reform issues, right, you're going to see, I think, effective CRUs. If you're in a place where that doesn't matter, you might not. Um, And to the extent the DAs are being elected based on their commitment to remedy wrongful convictions, you might see people adopting um, what you refer to as the gold standard. Uh, I I do want to note here in Nashville, um, our district attorney was elected pretty recently. Uh, this unit exists because it was something that it was that was important to him. And he ran on an early criminal justice reform platform uh, here in the South, where he was talking about knowing the difference between a bad guy and a good kid in trouble, and was talking about reforming some of our uh, unduly harsh sentencing laws through discretion. This was something that was important to him, and I don't think it would have come into being without him being elected. And I think he rightly identified a problem with the CRU as it was initially constituted, and we welcome the change. Uh, we're, we're glad it came to pass, and I, I hope it's going to result in, in some meaningful relief for Mr. Webster. Absolutely. Colin, I wanted to ask you, I want to switch gears before we lose you here. I understand that there are similar issues with the Joseph Webster case and Abdul Ali Abdur Rahman's case, which was mentioned by you in episode one. Can you remind us of that case and how it relates to Joseph Webster's case and and what's the status? Yeah, well, that's really interesting because this just popped up, I think, a couple of days ago. So, yeah, Abdur Rahman was convicted of killing Patrick Daniels as well as attacking Norma Jean Norman during a robbery. And Norma Jean Norman is the mother of both Shawana Norman, who, of course, was dating Kenny Neal at the time of this, as well as Katrina Norman, who eventually married Joseph Webster. 
and was with him at the time of the murder. And that was at the end of, I believe, episode one, where Shawana Norman was partially explaining why she didn't come forward to police and why she was uncomfortable in this case. And that's because the lead detective, Pat Pastiglione, was the lead detective on that Abdurrahman case. And what she said in the interview to the private investigator was, even though he's guilty of this crime, that basically Pastiglione was pressuring her to essentially perjure herself and lie about the nature of the crime. And so what's interesting about that case is that there were a large number of claims of ineffective assistance of counsel against trial counsel who admitted in the case that he pretty much dropped the ball. Uh, the court found deficient performance, but not prejudice to Abdurrahman. And what percolated now is he's on death row and has an execution date. And the question is, did the trial prosecutor in this case commit Batson violations, which are basically the prejudicial use of jury strikes? And, you know, Daniel might know about this more than I do, but this this guy, that prosecutor Zimmerman in that case, um, has apparently made comments. There was a case where it was a conspiracy case with all Hispanic-American defendants, and apparently he said he wanted an all-African-American jury because all blacks hate Mexicans. He's made statements about striking jurors from certain zip codes. And there's been, you know, obviously the, the key case, the Supreme Court just decided the Curtis Flowers case that was covered on the In the Dark podcast, which is probably a large reason why now there's a new hearing that's going to take place in that case about the use of the, the jury challenges and whether that violated constitutional rights. But yeah, it's interesting how these two cases that are so intertwined in some ways are, are both up for reconsideration after all these years now. I want to mention just two things. So the Abu Ali case is not an innocence case, right? It's a um, it's a case about whether the death penalty was was wrongly provided here. And yes, the trial trial counsel came out and said he did everything that he possibly could have done wrong in that case. Readily admitted it. Uh, deficiency is I think stipulated at this point. It's certainly been found by the courts and and part of his clemency application, if I understand those proceedings correctly is that this is the only death row case in Tennessee where um, deficiency has been found. So the, the similarities are, uh, I think, true in two regards. First, the same investigator, and then uh, secondly, some, some really just uh, poor performance by trial counsel, which has serious consequences. Um, I, I should note that you know, I have no independent knowledge as to whether or not um, that allegation uh, regarding encouraging perjured testimony is true or not. But what I do know is that in Joseph Webster's case, the investigation that was conducted was flagrantly incompetent, failed to follow up on multiple leads that would have led them, I think, to identifying the perpetrators in 1998. Uh, they failed to track down phone records. They failed to track down pager records. They failed to interview a bunch of people who would have been able to uh, help them identify a suspect. And then, you know, years after the fact, based on this uh, very, very sloppy investigation, they decide that they know who one of the two perpetrators is and they take Mr. Webster to trial. So that, to the extent that that it matters, I, I do know that the investigation, at least in Mr. Webster's case, um, was poorly conducted. Well, that's important to know. I think we're losing you here, Colin. Thank you so, so much for your time. Yep. Thank you very much. Daniel, last week we talked about the release of Centoria Brown and her sentence being commuted. So you have made repeated calls for clemency in the form of a pardon for Calvin Bryant Jr. in Tennessee. Why don't you tell us a little bit about his case? Sure. Um, so I, I have a couple of, of clemency clients who are asking for various forms of relief, one an exoneration, uh, one a commutation, and in Calvin's case, um, a pardon. So Calvin was convicted under uh, Tennessee's Drug-Free School Zone Act, uh, which is uniquely harsh even among a uh, sentencing enhancement that's, that's common in many places and is harsh everywhere. Tennessee's is just especially bad. Uh, it's, it's essentially a strict liability crime that um, massively ratchets up punishment um, for, for drug sales. And in, in cities, uh, places like Nashville, uh, where Calvin was convicted, or Memphis or Knoxville, vast proportions of the city uh, are in drug-free zones because the zone is so large and uh, so many 
uh, edifices qualify that you, you can have, you know, 40, 50, 60 percent of the city that is, quote unquote, a drug free zone. Uh, there also were not um, any safety valves, uh, they're commonly called. So if, you know, an informant sets you up in a drug free zone, some states consider that. If you don't know you're in a drug free zone, some states consider that. If it's a sale between adults rather than, you know, selling drugs to kids on the playground, some states take that into account. Tennessee does none of those things. And in this circumstance, you had an informant who was trying to work off his own criminal proceedings and, and sets uh, Calvin, who's a, a young kid at the time, up for a couple of drug sales. And he ends up as a first-time offender, nonviolent offender, kid who was in college and had a very bright future, being sentenced to 17 years in prison, 15 of those mandatory. Um, and last October, due to um, the cooperation and some uh, some luck, but mostly the cooperation of the district attorney here in Nashville and who, who advocated to the Tennessee Attorney General's office to um, to allow this to happen, Calvin was resentenced to a time served. At that point, it was 10 years he had spent in prison for this first time nonviolent drug offense. Um, got out, has been doing uh, such good work in the community. He's talking to kids. Uh, a lot of people still look up up to him because he was a high school football star, uh, won a state championship or two, and is focused on addressing youth violence and trying to to make sure that um, people don't make the same choices that he did. Uh, and he's, by all accounts, doing an absolutely fabulous job. The same district attorney's office that prosecuted him is, has now had him speak at at events involving some troubled youth and, and young adults. Uh, one of the DAs from that office uh, in her private capacity has uh, written a letter to the governor in support of Calvin's uh, clemency application. But what what he really wants to do is, is demonstrate, number one, that there is a path to redemption if you do everything right and take right. responsibility for, for what you've done, uh, which he has, and that you try to better yourself, uh, which he has. And uh, I think that's that's important, not only for him, because it'll allow him to get an expungement and clear his record uh, so he won't have a felony, but um, just to be able to serve as a as a model and as an example to others who are looking up, who see the system as just uh, preposterously unfair, and it is, but that th there is some glimmer of hope uh, that people can can rise above and overcome and and get back on a path to redemption. That's what we're we're really asking for here. But what I think is so important about that story, too, is this DA, right, that this DA's office or this person in particular you mentioned is willing to help and and sees that as the ultimate outcome as well. Right. It's not just about the ego of having got another, you know, criminal thrown behind bars and they can move on. Right. It sounds like they're really engaged with Calvin in this process, which I think is you know, part of the question that people were having about the CRU units, and I, I want to circle back to one social media question I missed earlier. Uh, Daniel, if you could help. Um, maybe it's just too broad a question, but but basically, you know, I think Norman was asking or understanding maybe that a DA has put someone in prison and they want to, you know, sort of walk away from that case like, yep, we got a victory here. But in the case of Joseph Webster, there there is another suspect. There is some a guilty party out there that maybe allows them to still feel the win, right? If you got Kenny Neal or the other person you says you said, the two people, like it feels more a trade out, right? For the real killer, as opposed to like letting someone get out and now we don't know who did it. Do you feel that that makes a difference in terms of granting relief? Like that if they feel like there is the real person there, you know, in a spotlight, uh, it, it helps get these cases resolved? I don't have enough of a, you know, data set to know whether that matters, I think intuitively, uh, of course it matters, right? If you you not only exonerate the wrongfully convicted person, but you get the real perpetrators at the same time, um, that sort of neatly wraps things in a bow. I don't think it's it should be considered a prerequisite. I think in a lot of cases that's not going to be possible. Um, right. But in Joseph Webster's case, I think it is. Um, I think at the very least, it it makes a, a very obvious case for a reinvestigation because this is still a cold case as to the second guy. And you would hope that law enforcement would be interested, even though it's been quite a while in figuring out who 
number two was and bringing that person to justice. I mean, somebody was killed here. It's the most serious crime that can be committed. And it's, it's important, I think, for the victim, for the victim's family, not to mention society at large, to make sure that we identify the proper perpetrators and hold them to account. Uh, there, there's just no public safety value whatsoever in imprisoning the wrong person. Uh, and there's enormous public safety value in getting people who commit murders identified correctly and, and convicted. I think that just has not happened here. Everybody agrees it hasn't happened here and uh, it needs to occur. Rabia, that brings me back to what started it all for me uh, in the true crime space at all was Adnan's case mm-hmm. and and how heartbreaking it is as someone who believes in Adnan's innocence to see the Heyman Lee's family um, struggling and her death not getting the closure it needs and and believing that whoever did do it is still at large out there living his life. I know that he, he there's a big date coming up for you with his case. Do you want to speak a little bit to that? Does he file a certain petition with the Supreme Court next? Yeah. So the next step here is that we're filing a cert with the U.S. Supreme Court. I think the deadline is August 19th. So we're like a week away. Um, and, you know, look, just to be honest and for all practical purposes, it's a very, very long shot that this case is going to be heard by the Supreme Court. I will say, though, there have been a lot of long shots in this story um, that have worked out. But, you know, certainly we have felt pretty demoralized since the Court of Appeals decision in March. Um, This is the next step. In some ways, we're kind of going through the motions of it because you never know. But also, we can't not do it. We need to to test it and see if it doesn't stick. But we're already preparing for what's going to come after that, which... Uh, we expect that the cert will not be granted. Like I said, it's a long shot. Uh, and that's going to bring us back in the state court. And so we're not done. But when you go back to state court, we're talking about another very long, maybe post-conviction journey. So maybe another three, four, five years, unless something drastically changes. Say, for example, <laughs> you have a new district attorney, a new attorney general who decides that maybe this case is right for the conviction integrity unit and they want to take a look at it in the next couple of years. But yeah, we we now know we've been set back. I mean, we went from thinking he'll probably be home this year to three, right. four, five years. Yeah, it's it's so hard. As I mean, especially when it, it happened, it felt so oddly motivated or or timing wise so strange to happen when the HBO special had been released, and then yet the Supreme Court heard the Curtis Flowers case. So. I mean, you sort of, I know it's like, and it's just about, about how many cases they receive, right? I mean, it's a long shot because they get so many sorts of petition, right? It's a long shot for a number of reasons. One is that, yeah, I mean, they get a huge volume of certs filed, but also, you know, it depends on the issue, right? So does this issue rise to the level um, of, does it rise to the level of importance that they feel like there has to be some ruling on it from the highest court in the land, I don't know. Um, you know, I mean, one of the most problematic things about this ruling, of course, not just how it impacted Adnan, but also it's, his case is already being cited by, by I don't know if it's this court or other courts, to deny other defendants. And so it's to set right. a bad precedent. And I'm hoping that argument will be what catches the court's attention to say, well, we don't want to set this this terrible, terrible precedent. I don't know. Yeah, but Curtis Flowers, that was really heartening. Um, and, you know, but gosh, that man, you know, he's been through a lot to get to it. And we're right. it's still not over. The story's still not over for him. It's important for people who are not involved in this day to day to realize just how difficult it is for an innocent person to pull the right levers of the judicial system mm. and get out of prison. Um, for a number of reasons, procedural bars, uh, presumptions, uh, any uh, a host of issues, the legal system makes it extraordinarily difficult, even when I think reasonable people looking from the outside in say, well, you know, the evidence is clear here. That guy is clearly innocent. Why is he still in prison? And given that that's the, the framework um, under which we're operating, 
until that changes the entire apparatus of how um, post-conviction and uh, habeas proceedings are litigated, until that is all reformulated, these CRUs are enormously important in yeah. the elections for district attorneys and, um, you know, in some places the attorney general, those elections really matter because those people are in a position to say, you know, even if this person has waived a claim or even if this evidence doesn't meet the standard of newly discovered, um, just looking at this case, it is very clear to me that this person is in prison for something that they did not do. And they are in a position to let that person out of prison. Uh, it's it's a it's a solemn duty, um, and it's it's something that only some prosecutors take seriously. I think it's it's important for people to be uh, cognizant of that fact when district attorneys are up for election, and to really care um, about not just getting convictions but getting it right getting the right convictions and holding people accountable. I mean, the part that's also so, that just rubs me so raw in all of these cases is that there really isn't a consequence for whether it is just egregious sort of being bad at your job or being sort of intentionally obstructive to the defense team uh, of withholding evidence. Like it, it feels like there's very little consequence to the people on the prosecution side for, for any of those behaviors. And that part's really and hard. And there never really has been, right? So all the, the tough-on-crime prosecutors who, who walk around beating their chest have clearance rates in murder cases and rape cases that are embarrassing, right? Many people who commit very violent crimes are never identified. Um, so in, in many cities, the median length of incarceration for murder is zero because they never catch the murderer, right? That is not anything resembling tough-on-crime with their... Uh, simply doing is is acting and uh, conveying an image that doesn't match the reality of what's going on in their jurisdictions. I think what um, Krasner is doing is is the best example of what uh, meaningful prosecutorial priorities actually look like. We're going to go after violent offenders and convict them, and we're not going to waste resources on things that don't matter. And we're going to make sure that if somebody's in prison for something that they didn't do, they come out. Right? Those are those are important things uh, for prosecutors to care about, and uh, there are only some who do. So that's and I think it really speaks to law enforcement too, right? Like that, those kinds of actions. And if he is tough on following up on the cases that that they did um, investigate properly, you know, uh, will help law enforcement recognize that they need to do their job too. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the fact that many office, many law enforcement offices, police departments or district attorney's offices do not, you know, really genuinely when you're when you're looking at their record um, care about violent crime is is evident from things like what what is commonly referred to as the rape kit backlog, uh, which is not really a backlog. Right. They had the resources to test rape kits. They just decided not to believe people who were coming forward um, and investigate them. Right. They spent their investigative resources on uh, turnstile jumping or jaywalking or nonviolent drug offenses instead because um, investigating rape wasn't considered a priority. Right. That's not tough on crime in any sense, even though it's the sort of thing that happens in tough on crime jurisdictions. Wow. That is a lot to take in. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Rabia, I have one final question for you regarding what's coming next. We are all anxious to hear what, um, if you have updates for us, special episodes, or is there a new uh, new podcast or new uh, case you're covering? Tell us what's happening yeah, in we September. September 9th, we are launching um, our long series for the year. Every year we have one longer season, one case we go much more in depth. Um, this year, the case is coming out of Tennessee, uh, and it's something that I've been working on since last year. It's a double homicide. The case is a couple of decades old. It is, I have to say, I don't think I've come across a case with this many people, like characters and witnesses and potential witnesses. I mean, just, I need one of those crazy you know, charts that have all the strings that attach to one another, like just to keep people straight. Um, 
it's a really interesting case. It's got, there's, you know, uh, untested evidence in it, uh, like DNA evidence that's potentially there. And I got to say that this defendant at the heart of it has been an incredible advocate for himself over the past 20 years. But, you know, uh, as Daniel said, it is so nearly impossible to reverse a conviction, even when you have some really good um, leads and evidence on who the actual perpetrator or perpetrators might be. So it's a, it's a fascinating case. And I think, um, you know, it's going to run uh, about 10 to 12 episodes this fall. Well, we're really excited to hear more about it. You've definitely gotten us interested in this case and, and the whole premise of wrongful convictions to me as someone, you know, on the sidelines, right? Not really engaged in this. You just, every day, it feels more and more, Daniel, exactly what you just described, which is that the system is designed to protect itself, right? It's designed to protect the the conviction, whatever it may be, or the outcome and not make room for the fact that people got it wrong. And I, and I feel like even just with the technology, like we're at all these cases and Robbie, it sounds like there might be DNA in this case, the next case, like mm -hmm. they didn't have the ability to do that 20, 30 years ago, the way that we do now, how can that not be reflected in the way our judicial system operates today? Like, Maybe in today's most common or you know current cases, we could handle it differently twenty years from now. But like these cases obviously were you know they had they were up against it, right? They didn't have the technology we have now. How can we not address that in our judicial system? I think you're absolutely right. The problem fundamentally is that in every jurisdiction in America, we value finality over accuracy. And there is still this perception that law enforcement never gets it wrong. Uh, despite abundant evidence to the contrary. I think we probably get it wrong a lot more than people realize or are willing to accept. And uh, everybody needs to get on board with, with the shared goal that wrongfully convicted people don't belong in prison. Robbie, any final thoughts? No, um, just wishing you uh, all the best, Daniel, with this case. And we're going to continue to follow it and uh, report on any updates and, and let us know how we can continue to be of assistance to get Mr. Webster some justice. Thanks very much. And good luck in the Supreme Court. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. And uh, we're, we're definitely rooting for everyone here. Thank you. I want to thank all the sponsors of our show. I want to thank Hannah McCarthy, who is our audio producer, and Mithal Tehan, who is the executive producer. Please follow Undisclosed on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Undisclosed. I'm Ali Sweeney. You can follow me at Ali underscore Sweeney on Twitter or at Ali Sweeney on Instagram. And know that my proceeds from today's episode is going to the free Adnan Syed campaign. Thank you so much. <laughs>